1: I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Gail Smith. Gail is the founder and CEO of Dahlia Grove, a Charlotte, North Carolina nonprofit that provides rehabilitation, social services, employment, and community to women who have been sexually abused and exploited. Gail Smith, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thank you. Glad thanks to be
1: t- No, thanks for your time today. I know we've had some scheduling conflicts, so I'm glad we are able to finally do this today, so thank you. You know, and Gail, every once in a while, I like to, as the old saying goes, start at the start. So let's do that today. Tell us where your story starts, where were you raised, what was your family and childhood like, and what were your interests?
2: Well, I was raised in Georgia, all over Atlanta area. My dad was a pastor, and so he had two long pastorates, one in Fairburn, Georgia, one in Griffin, Georgia. And then I um, started playing piano for church at a very early age and went on to college and majored in music. And then I've had a 30 year church musician career, teaching school, all those kind of things. Um, But I also am a survivor of domestic violence and had a couple of marriages that were very abusive. And um, that kind of led me to where I am now.
1: And we'll get into that later in the show, but quite often, at least that's how the stereotype goes it's the, quote, preacher's kid who's the biggest troublemaker in Hellraiser. Was, it, was that you as a child and a teenager?
2: Not at all. And, and my family, it's so funny. There's six kids, okay? And five of them were very stoic, very logical. And then I'm a musician, so I'm an artist and feely and emotional. And so I just didn't fit in, really. And I, my mother uh, is pretty controlling, regimented, structured, whatever words you want to use. With six kids, you have to be. How would you even get the laundry done for six kids um and i i mean none of us out of six kids got into trouble at all so either her very controlling <laughs> behaviors worked or we just were blessed to have a, a good family
1: you mentioned your father was a minister and you were raised in the baptist church but were there particular experiences that led you to embrace your faith
2: um That's a hard question because my faith has changed drastically from what it was as a child. Um, Being a female and thinking that I was being called to ministry when women weren't allowed to speak in the pulpit, women weren't allowed. I remember Santa Claus gave me a Bible and I told my dad, how did Santa know I wanted to be a preacher? And my dad said, you must have misunderstood that because women can't be preachers. Um, And so I left the Baptist church, but after a couple of failed marriages and, and a lot of abuse, my paradigm of my faith shifted drastically. And and I really believe that the crux of our faith um, is how well do we love each other as people and how well do we take care of each other as people. And it doesn't mean you have to agree, just means that you love people the way God instructed us to love. And um, that wasn't necessarily the way I was brought up.
1: (laughs) So you mentioned as you grew older, you became very active uh, in the church. How did you share your time, talent, and your treasure?
2: Well, being a music major, I have a degree in vocal performance. And so I have directed music at churches for years, Um, the whole department, from choirs to, to ensembles, to handbells, to children's choirs, everything under the sun, and then also taught in the public school system and a private school system for a while. So, and taught piano, you know, all the things a musician does to make a living.
1: So you mentioned you were married a few times, had some abusive relationships. You were married not once, but three times. And those were very abusive relationships. We know that the men abuse women for different reasons. It could be power and control, unhealthy masculinity, their own history of abuse and trauma, substance abuse, and addiction, and greed. How can you explain what happened to you with several men? Were you drawn to them or did men who abuse women know how to target? Or is it both?
2: I think it's both. You know, I, for me in my growth and healing, I've learned that I have to own what part of this is mine. And part of that is women in general don't have a real healthy self-esteem. And so they don't stand up for themselves. Part of that is early childhood sexual trauma leaves women with Um, this insatiable need to be loved and validated. And, and so you tend to go wherever you get it. And if you, and if it's a man who is controlling and abusive, then, you know, takers are often attracted to givers. (laughs) And it's kind of the way it works out. But if I had had the self-esteem and the confidence the first time it happened to say, no, this is not okay. But it didn't, I was an extreme people pleaser. And so I kept thinking and this is where my faith changed drastically, having been brought up, you know, just pray about it. Your he- God controls everything, and you know, just love Him one more time, unconditional love, and He's finally going to change. And and none of that happened for me, and I had to change the way I thought about faith and the way I thought about God, because that's the only way it made sense for me. And I the crux of it, I learned that forgiveness is not always about reconciliation of our relationships. It's about letting go and not having bitterness and being able to walk forward without, you know, animosity or bitterness or whatever. And reconciling myself to who God said I was and not who my abuser said I was.
1: What advice or warning signs do you have for women to help them avoid getting into a relationship with someone who's abusive?
2: Well, some major warning signs to me Um, if they want to know where you are every minute, if they're always checking your phone, if they, you know, uh, there were times that I'd go work out and my husband would follow me to make sure I went to the gym, you know, um, anything like that is like a huge red flag, but also just not allowing you to have your own thoughts. You know, it started very subtly where, you know, the first one was really abuse through the use of religion. And he, um, wanted to have Bible study and prayer together and that's fine because I was in that same faith. But when I wasn't praying what he wanted to hear and it became very controlling even to what I prayed, you know, and, and then the anger and the abuse and the not hitting me, but, you know, hitting holes and walls and throwing things and things like that. Um, the verbal abuse was prolific and the emotional abuse because of it. But, um, But anytime they try to control your thoughts and they can't validate and accept you for who you are. are.
1: Did your abusive relationships ever cause you to doubt your faith?
2: Caused it to change. Never never caused me to doubt it. Just caused it to grow in a different way.
1: I've had other guests involved with anti-trafficking organizations and efforts. And they tell me that one of the things they hear from people about the women caught up in trafficking is... Yeah, We all have free will. Why didn't they just leave? Why would they stay in such a horrible situation? What have you learned about the answer to that question?
2: Well, a lot of it is just pure mind control. I mean, it is absolute brainwashing them um, to thinking they will never deserve or have anything better. Sometimes it's um, force, fraud, and coercion are the words the FBI uses. And that force and fraud and coercion could be, You know, they're promising to make them rich and wealthy and famous, or it could be, you're either going to do this or I'm going to kill your nephew, you know, and then show them picture of their nephew getting off the bus. Um, The other thing is, I think a lot of times the traffickers get them very addicted to drugs. And so if you want that next hit, you've got to go do what I'm telling you to do. And then when they get back, the drugs are on the dresser. And that addiction is so strong.
1: In 2016 you founded dahlia grove what was your motivation and please share the story about what it took to get it off the ground
2: well the motivation was really my own recovery i had a hard time recovering as a single mom and a musician musicians especially church musicians don't make a lot of money and i remember days where the only thing i had to eat was what my children left on their plate you know and the poverty and trying to get yourself out of poverty is so ridiculously hard that poverty cycle is almost impossible to be broken. And I just, I was fortunate that I had a church family and I had a family that was supportive. And many of these women don't. And I landed pretty solidly financially and emotionally. And, and I wanted to offer women help that if I can do it, they can do it.
1: Dahlia Grove has a residential program. But I understand that you're not a safe house. How is Dahlia Grove different than a safe house?
2: Well, a safe house frequently is where when the women are first rescued from human trafficking, they're put in these houses that the the address is never disclosed to anyone um, because sometimes their pimps or traffickers are looking for them and they keep them in those safe houses until after they've been able to prosecute the trafficker and the women have testified to keep them safe. It's almost like witness protection in some ways. But it's a safe place for them to heal for a little bit. Ours would be like the next step when they're ready to get back out into the world and they want to develop job um, skills and begin making money and build a life.
1: You modeled Dahlia Grove after Thistle Farms in Nashville. How did you learn about Thistle Farms and its programs?
2: Well, um, a friend of mine took me to speak with a guy here in Charlotte who was a CNN hero for his horseback program for special needs kids. And when I went to see him, He said, You know what you need to do? You need to go talk to Becca Stevens at Thistle Farms. She was a CNN hero the same time he was. So he kind of set that up um, for me. But the next morning, my choir came in, and one of my tenors taught Sunday school. And we had done a church wide study by Adam Hamilton called The Advent Conspiracy. And it talked about giving more but spending less by giving to organizations so that your your giving is doubled because of the work it does. And it mentioned Thistle Farms. So he walks in and he says, you know what you need to do? You need to go visit Thistle Farms. So this is two people in two days. That afternoon, my sister said, you know what I've been thinking? You should go to Thistle Farms and see Becca Stevens. And I'm going, how in the world do you know Becca Stevens? And she said she went to college with her and she said she hadn't thought to mention it to me. So three people in three days, I got on a plane the next day. It doesn't get much clearer than that.
1: I was going to say, if that's not a sign, I don't know what is.
2: I know, right?
1: So, Dahlia Grove and Thistle Farms are part of a 65 sister national network. Does that network have a formal name, and how does it benefit its individual sisters?
2: It's basically just called the National Network, the Thistle Farms National Network. One of the biggest uh, benefits of that is just a place for support because this is hard work and the burnout is huge. And to have a Zoom meeting once a month with the other sister organizations and, you know, somebody might say, look, we're having this problem. How did y'all deal with that? Or it may be, you know, we don't like our medical, our distribution of medicine. Can you tell me how you did it and what forms did you use? And so it's sharing of documents and information and encouragement more than anything because it is, it's a hard job.
1: I I can't believe you do what you do and I can't imagine how hard it is. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, later on the show. I read a recent article about you in which you said you worked with a couple of anti-trafficking organizations in Charlotte before founding Dahlia Grove. You said one of them was so spiritual that they had no room for the clinical and one was so clinical they had no room for the spiritual. It's got to be both. It's got to be the whole person. How does Dahlia Grove strike that perfect balance?
2: Well, we don't always hit a home run, but we try. (laughs) Um, Part of the the beauty of what we do is our morning circle, and it's a morning meditation time um frequently I don't refer to God as God because some of them had very very bad experiences in the church and so I'll c- talk about our creator more than anything because whoever created you loves you and um but that morning. T- Meditation time is based on a sixth century Benedictine monk rule of how to live in community. And so it's something that transcends time. I mean, it's been around forever and it still works. And it believe, we believe that love is the most powerful force for change in the world. So we connect them to all their resources for healing and, and all of that stuff. But we also work on the spiritual in our morning circle. And it's it's a slow thing. It's kind of like peeling an onion. You you have to work at it little by little until they they kind of are ready to hear it, but also believe in respecting other people's faith too. I mean, if somebody came to me and that was, you know, um, a Jewish person and wanted to go to the synagogue, I would make sure she got there because I think I think community is important and whatever your faith community is is important. And so we'll support that. But, um, so spiritually, that's how we do it. The, the mental health and the physical health, we connect to other resources in town, the network. Um, but then we do job skills and job training. Um, we also do financial training. And so it really is helping every part of the person.
1: And that same article detailed that you were angry at one of the women in the program, not showing up for work because she went to a tattoo artist, even though she didn't have much money. What's the rest of that story and what did you learn from it?
2: <laughs> well, the rest of that story is I didn't get mad and yell at her and say, You don't know, have two nickels to rub together, and the little bit I can afford to pay you, you spend at a tattoo artist, which is what I wanted to say. But I talked to the program director and found out that her tattoo was a branding from her trafficker. And on back, it said property of her pimp's name. And she was actually going to a Tattoo artist that had volunteered his time to remove the tattoo. And so they had to work around his schedule. But it, it made me uh, kind of check myself on my middle class white privilege attitude that, you know, all tattoos, you know, I was brought up where tattoos are bad, but, you know, they're not. And, and it really made me check myself a little bit on, on how judgmental I could be without knowing the whole story.
1: We're all broken in one way or another. And you've talked about turning your brokenness into compassion and i certainly don't want you to share any more than you're comfortable sharing but please talk about that concept which i believe stems from the bible right
2: hmm well turning brokenness into compassion number one is i think a great way to find healing for instance as i started this organization and we talk in morning circle about forgiveness and about remembering your ditch and about seeing the stranger as God, and all of the concepts that we discuss, it continues to help me heal. And every once in a while, something will bubble to the surface, I think, ooh, I need to do more work there. And so I think the more we share our brokenness together and the more compassion we have for each other, we help each other heal.
1: Our well-being and development really depend on healthy interpersonal relationships, and especially family relationships. Often it seems that girls and women who are trafficked have been betrayed and abused by the very people who should be trusted the most, their family. I'd think if you couldn't trust your family, you'd have a difficult time in trusting anyone. When that happens, what is the effect on that girl or young woman?
2: Well, they don't trust it. Well, I say that it's really odd because let a man say, I love you. I'll take care of you. And they'll jump in with both feet. But if you're trying to help them change their life, they're not going to trust you. And it's the, the strangest thing, but it's that, it, like I said, that insatiable hole to be loved and validated, usually left over from childhood sexual trauma. And, and until they do the hard work of healing that inside themselves, they will continue to make mistakes where men are concerned. But it takes a long time before they let the walls down and begin to trust we who are trying to help them.
1: Well, I guess as a follow-up, how are you able to create a solid foundation of trust with the young women who come to Dahlia Diet Growth Program you mentioned it takes a long time how long is there an average
2: no um sometimes it's discouraging because the addictions are so strong that it's almost like a revolving door of relapses because it just takes a long time and we're just learning so much more about addiction recovery than what we used to know and that most of it is trauma-based but it's painful doing the hard work of pulling all that stuff up to the surface. And that's usually when they end up relapsing and, you know, they're in therapy and they've got uh, drug counselors. But I would say for the most part, if we can get past the six month mark, our odds of keeping them increase significantly. Um, And I I think, I think it's just that repeated being there and doing what you say you're going to do and, Um, even in small things, you know, and reminding them constantly that they are loved and they are cared for.
1: And at that point, when they do have a sense of trust within their community, how is there a way for them to start, you know, going outside their their safe haven and and developing trust with other people?
2: Well, we do take them to NA and AA meetings every night. And, um, and like one young lady is in third phase and she's going to college. So she is outside the bubble. She's in college. One's going to culinary school. So once they get to third phase, they do have those options if they want to do a trade school or go to college or whatever. Um, and they slowly learn. And And I think the harder thing is not that they don't trust other people. They don't trust themselves. You know, they're afraid they're going to make the same mistakes again. And they're, you know, that's the harder part, because I think in some ways, they're very naive and eager to trust, like I said, a man, But to trust themselves to get healthy, that's hard. You know, and and we say all the time, they know how to be high. They don't know how to be sober. And they don't know how to feel all those feelings and find other ways to deal with them other than getting high.
1: When a young woman arrives at Dahlia Grove, what do they have in terms of physical possessions, skills, and support?
2: It depends on where they're coming from. If they're coming from jail frequently, they have only what's on their back. That's literally it. Um, If they're coming from addiction treatment facility, they have some clothes. Um, Some of them are from wealthy families and they have a lot. You know, you just never know. There's really no stereotype. Um, There are some things that I think are stronger factors like poverty. You know, sometimes there's a a large uh, factor in this, but There's no stereotype as to who
1: gets human trafficked. Why did you decide to teach food service and culinary skills?
2: Well, because growing up learning to cook, we were cooking for an army anyway. (laughs) But mom was... very much a cook and very hospitable. And all the church dinners she always did. And we joked growing up that we should have started a wedding facility. Dad could do the weddings. I could play the music. Mom could do the food. (laughs) And that's really kind of where it all started. Because even through college, I worked in food service as my food uh, work study on campus. And um, I've just always used food to supplement my income. And it was just a no-brainer. I mean, when my kids were little and in school, I would put flyers in the teacher's boxes at Thanksgiving and Christmas on take-home Thanksgiving meals or desserts or whatever. And that's how I would raise the money for Santa Claus for my kids. So I've just always – I'm a little bit of an entrepreneur. I will find a way.
1: <laughs> I was just going to use that exact word. You'll, you'll figure it out. I love that.
2: I will. That's right.
1: It's the American will. And You also have a manufacturing arm. What Mm -hmm. skills are, what skills are developed there?
2: Um, We make candles and body scrubs and they're down there making keychains right now, sewing. Um, We're going to make herbal heating pads next week and trying to get ready for the Christmas season and get all this online. We are making reusable grocery bags. Um, We have a beach bag that we make that uh, it's called the flipping bag. It flips wrong side out and becomes a chase lounge cover, but it's a towel and a bag. but mostly jewelry, candles, body products, and things that they sew with textiles.
1: And where can people see these items and learn more?
2: Well, I'm gonna say the website, but we sell them so fast, I can't even get them on the website before I have to take it down because it's already sold. Because every time I speak somewhere, we take and set up a table and, and we sell a lot.
1: That, that's amazing, that's fantastic you're adamant that participants receive a lot of financial training and learn about financial accountability. Why is that so important?
2: Um, Like I said, I I joke about this, but it's really not a joke. Sometimes I feel like Scarlett O'Hara in the middle of Gone with the Wind at the intermission when she pulls a carrot out of the ground and says, by God, I will never go hungry again. When you've lived in poverty and all you eat is what's left on your child's plate, you learn that financial security is important. And I really made a commitment to myself to get myself out of that and put enough money in the bank that if I were to lose my job for six months, I could pay my bills while I looked for a job. And so that's kind of how I teach. And I think I think also they look for people to rescue them, um, not only emotionally, but financially. You know, they're going to marry a rich man and they're going to be happily ever after and they're never going to have to worry about money again. And I am very much about women's empowerment. You be financially stable. And then your choice to be in relationship is based on relationship, not anything else. Um, And that's one of the things I'm the most proud of because the way our financial program works, once they um, start working, we pay them $10 an hour and they don't have any expenses. There are a lot of programs that require their residents to work and they never get paid in exchange for room and board. We pay them out of the gate, we pay them $10 an hour. In phase one, they can only work eight hours a week, but from the first paycheck, they have to save 10% of their income into a savings account to build that habit so that they learn to do that out of every paycheck. When they get to phase two, they're working 20 hours a week, and they have to put 20% of their money into a savings account. And then phase three, they're working uh, 40 hours a week, but they have to save 30% of their income. So we had our first graduate who was a special needs individual who graduated with $13,000 in the bank. I took her out to uh, dinner for her birthday recently, and I check in and see how her finances are. And, you know, are you taking your medicine? Are you still going to counseling? And and she said, yes, I'm doing great financially. I have $30,000 in the bank. And I went... Can I have a loan? (laughs) (laughs) But she said, You told me I had to save from every paycheck, so I do. And she's kept doing it.
1: That's amazing. So, your program is a two year residential program, and that's quite a long time. It can be quite an investment. I imagine some people think that's an awfully long time, maybe even too long. How did you settle in that length of time, and why do you think it's necessary?
2: Well, the first reason I did it was just because that was the Thistle Farms model, and I thought, They've hired, they know the professionals. I'm going to follow what they're doing. Um, But the more I've studied and learned about brain studies, the neuroplasticity in the brain and the post acute withdrawal syndrome sometimes take as much as two years for the brain to heal. So to give them a safe place and to remove as much anxiety as we can so that they know that their job is to save money and plan for when you graduate um, is just takes a lot of stress off of them, so they really can focus on healing.
1: Let's talk about how exactly Dahlia Grove goes about healing survivors of abuse and trafficking. What is trauma-informed therapy, and how does it fit into the Dahlia Grove program?
2: Well, trauma-informed care is it's a, a more and more prevalent. You'll hear a lot about it these days, but it's really just understanding that the person is coming from a place of trauma, and sometimes their mood swings, sometimes their um, numbness or they're being tired is because of severe trauma and you know you can't just say stuck it up you know th- that you really got to understand their trauma and to me it's about loving people where they are and you know a lot of brain studies fascinate me but a brain you know a normal brain is firing on all hemispheres most of the time but a brain that's been through trauma or severe drug use, the only thing, well, the one that's firing the most is their reptilian, whatever that one's called. (laughs) But the frontal lobe, which is your reasoning and logic, is not. So it would make sense that they have trouble with decisions. It would make sense that they have trouble, you know, with any problem solving. But the fight or flight, it's working fine you know and so you react different you offer different services you change the words that you use when you know that they've been through severe trauma
1: among the other things that you do dahlia grove has a four-phase approach first is preparing the soil planting the seed blossom and bloom and sisters for life take us through each of those steps if you would please
2: In phase one, when they first come to us, it is mostly about getting their documents in order. They don't have any ID. They don't have birth certificates, nothing. Um, Traffickers frequently take those and give them fake IDs. And that's one of the ways they keep them and control them. But even those that have been in domestic violence and severe drug use, when you're getting high, you don't care where your birth birth certificate is, you know. And so they lose all that. So we spend a lot of time getting their social security card, their birth certificate. And then we um, work on drug treatment. We take them and get assessments for their drug treatment at a a place here where they do an intensive outpatient program. They have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. After they finish that, we have a program here in town that's called um, BraveWorks. It used to be Fashion and Compassion. And BraveWorks is where they learn to make jewelry and it's a speaker-driven program um, just an excellent resource and network with us. They do Dress for Success, which is a national organization. They do Goodwill University, which is where they can develop some soft skills and hard skills for job training and online learning. Um, and all that's in phase one. In phase two, they're working 20 hours a week in our social enterprise. And then 20 hours a week of week is still in recovery. We have an organization here called Promise Resource Network, which is more addiction recovery specialists and classes and things like that. They can choose in phase two to go to college, finish through GED, all of those things. So um, phase two is when they really do personality assessments, career assessments, and where am I going to go from here? Phase three, they're working up to 40 hours a week and they still have to do five meetings in a week. So they're still working on recovery and they still have therapy. And we try to encourage them to work out. It's like a real job. I mean, most people, if you're gonna work out, it's before or after work, it's not during the day. And if you go to counseling, it's before or after work, it's not during the day. So third phase is very much getting them ready for real life. They use public transportation in third phase so that they're learning how to maneuver the bus system and get to and from their doctor's appointments. And I kind of say it this way, whether it's teaching them finances or even with our nurse teaching them medical care. When they come in, we do it for them and they watch us. In phase two, we do it with them and they're learning to do it with our help. In phase three, they do it, but we're here if you need our help.
1: You mentioned earlier that to this day, the rule of St. Benedict from the sixth century serves as the foundation for the monastic way of life, followed by Benedictine monks, monks and nuns. I think it's very interesting that a Baptist from North Carolina employs the Benedictine principles to help women rebuild their lives. Was that a decision that you made?
2: (laughs) Well, again, that's following the Thistle Farms model. And honestly, when I walked into Thistle Farms, there was a community there and I just knew in my gut that's what I wanted to create. And so that's part of their model. And the book that we use is actually 24 Principles that Becca Stevens, the founder of Thistle Farms, took and kind of simplified and expounded on for you know, a paragraph or so. And then it's uh, three or four pages of other addicts and survivors of human trafficking who share their concepts and ideas. So as we read it in the morning, the women go, wow, I'm not alone in this. Other people have gone through this, too. And, and then they share what spoke to you today about that. And so it becomes this really sacred moment almost of vulnerability and encouragement and community. Um, It's my favorite thing that we do.
1: (laughs) And one of those principles has to do with seeing the stranger as God. Explain that principle and please share the story about the young woman on the bus who was going to Walmart.
2: Well, you know, my dad always said, except for the grace of God, there go I, which is bad grammar to begin with, but second of all, I don't know that I like that theology. There is a little bit of, yes, because of God's grace, I'm not on the streets. I'm not in poverty or whatever, but it's almost a privilege looking down, you know, whereas when you say, see the stranger is God, you're eye to eye with them. You're there working, getting your hands dirty with them. It's not looking down on them in any way. It's walking beside them. And the young girl that graduated, um, when she was in, in Tennessee, she got on the bus and a stranger sat down beside her and said, where are you going today? And she said, I'm going to Walmart, to steal some food. And he said, don't do that. And he said, he told the bus driver to please stop at the next corner. And he took her by the hand and led her right into Thistle Farms and said, these women will help you. So this, she never saw the man again, doesn't know where he came from, but he took her to Thistle Farms and then they referred her to us.
1: And you also shared with me the beautiful story about a young woman and the principle of finding her way home. Would you tell that story for our audience, please?
2: One of the things we say is we light the candle for women on the streets to find their way home. And I think that finding the way home is not just to a house, but to themselves and find the way home to who their creator created them to be and who they truly are in their authentic selves. And there was this one girl that came to us who was almost catatonic. I mean, she wouldn't look you in the eye. You couldn't touch her. Um, She wouldn't sleep in a bed. I mean, when you've been homeless almost your whole life, sleeping on the floor is more comfortable than bed. And one morning out of nowhere, she said, I want to share. And I said, "Okay." She said, I don't know how to, to voice this, but I feel like I've been homesick my whole life for a place I didn't even know existed. And I feel like I'm finally home.
1: That's incredible. And with stories like that, how do you personally deal with the day-to-day emotional pain and stress, seeing all the hurt and trauma and the sadness? I mean, that has to take a toll on you at some point, right?
2: Yeah. And there is this thing that they've proven now is a true thing called vicarious trauma. When I first started, I would internalize the stories that I was hearing and have nightmares at night and be putting myself and my children in those stories. And it was horrible. But a lot of it is I have a very good support system. And, um, and of course, music has always been my escape and my therapy. But I think it's important to stay in therapy as well, because not only am I now processing my trauma, but the vicarious trauma of other people. And, um, and, and I think that's real important to not experience burnout.
1: As you began working with these women, Did you feel like you knew what you were doing, especially when it came to providing them with employment?
2: For me, providing them with employment was the easy part because I have done a lot of things to get myself out of poverty. And I knew I could teach it because I am a teacher at heart. And um, so I'm thinking I can provide jobs, no problem. The harder part is the addiction recovery piece and the psychology because I, you know, I thought all you got to do is get them free and give them a job and everything's going to be great. I had no idea the amount of trauma and and just horrible abuse and that it's not just something you can just snap out of. And then, of course, an addiction, um, to get your drug of choice, you'll lie, still, manipulate, cheat. And, and most of them have burned every bridge with family members. And um, those habits don't stop immediately. They have to be relearned unlearned and then learn a new one in its place. But yeah, it's not as easy as I thought it was going to (laughs) be. Well,
1: I guess to that point, what didn't you understand about trauma or as you said before, trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma?
2: Yeah. Um, Like one young lady who was trafficked from three to 12, but it was by her own mother. The person that should have protected her and cared for her was the one trafficking her. You know, and I can't even begin to understand that kind of trauma. And so it helps you understand when they act a certain way or they don't trust authority, you know, because everybody they've known has abused them. So, I mean, it's been a long process in trying to understand trauma and how to best relate to it. Because everybody's trauma is different and everybody's triggers are different. And that's one reason why it's a very client-centered approach, because every woman is totally different. And what they need from us and what their traumas are and what triggers them. And so it's very complicated because what works for one may not work for the other.
1: I've had several guests on who either who are either survivors or work for uh, you know a safe house or something similar to your program. And I'm always shocked and amazed and thoroughly disgusted, actually, when I hear stories about somebody being trafficked by their own family member. And, and especially their mother, like you said, the one person who's supposed to protect them the most. Yeah. I just can't imagine how somebody comes back from that. It's unfathomable, unconscionable. So thank you for what you do. You know, As parents, there are many things that kids do that we can't control or probably shouldn't be blamed for. But quite often when we see young women who end up being sex trafficked, there's a family connection or reasons, isn't there? Would you explain that?
2: Well, I think, like I said, most of it has evidence that it's gone back to early childhood sexual trauma most women who end up in trafficking or prostitution were molested or raped by the time they were eight or 10 years old by somebody they knew and trusted in their own family. Um, and and the other part of that is when a young girl goes to her mother and says, Uncle so-and-so is touching me, and the mom doesn't believe him, you know, And then that creates a toxic relationship between the mom and the daughter, and the victim is not believed. And so then she's forced to hug uncle so-and-so every time she sees him or, you know, and there's just so many things that go go awry in that situation. Um, but I would think the things I would say the most with parents, raise your women to be independent. Raise them to have a voice. You know, no more tell your little girl that you're to be seen and heard and sit down and don't talk unless you're spoken to. You know, and to stand up for yourself and learn to speak the truth in love. And don't be disrespectful, but speak the truth. And um, I just think our society has conditioned and has rules where women are supposed to be a certain way. And and that's made us almost subservient at times. And therefore, we submit ourselves to abusive people when we should have said, no, that's not Okay.
1: You know, generations of parents have swept sexual abuse under the rug. You talk about uncle so-and-so touching somebody, you know, they didn't want to believe it or they didn't want to talk about it. Do you think this generation of parents is better about getting it out in the open or is it still the same old, same old?
2: I think it's better, but I think we've got a long way to go. What I do think parents today are better at doing is helping people put words to their emotions. And I think we're, we're making progress there. And um, not stuffing all your feelings, but to say, you know, that made me angry or that upsets me. Whereas for a lot of us, we weren't allowed to express that at all, ever. <laughs> um, and I think that comes with it. Because then if you have a young girl who has been molested, to be able to express her feelings and her thoughts in a safe place and know that it's okay to... I mean, because many times women don't tell anybody because they're they're taught not to not to tell.
1: How can or should we interrupt that potential trajectory after a child has been abused?
2: The first step is believe them when they tell you. And one of the things in teaching that we said, perception is reality. You know, that even if it may not have happened to the point that you think it's abuse, that child perceived it as abuse and it has to be treated like that. Because that abuse will go with them the rest of their life unless it's dealt with correctly and i would say get them in therapy if they have any expression of having been abused believe them and get them in therapy and then empower them encourage them to have a good self-esteem you know um I, i think we find it hard in our culture um because we are taught especially in very conservative fundamental churches to be very humble and subservient and submissive. And we're not taught that it's okay to say, I don't like this. I'm not comfortable with this. Um, But I think that's a big step is just empowering your children to say, how do they feel? What makes them happy? What makes them uncomfortable? And know that it's a safe place to talk.
1: I've mentioned parents and their role in thwarting sexual abuse and the possibility of their children becoming vulnerable to trafficking. Do you think law enforcement is getting more compassionate and realistic in its approach to women who have been forced in the sex trade?
2: I think think they are uh, getting better. All of them do in-service training now to understand more about human trafficking. But for a while, you know, it's the prostitute that gets penalized, not the John. And one of the things I love to say, there may not be a pimp, but there's always a John until we teach men to treat women differently and that we are not a commodity for their own pleasure.
1: We've, we've talked about some very heavy and disturbing things today. Where do you, or did you find the strength and courage to be the way that you are?
2: Um, honestly, my children, I mean, I had to keep, I had to keep getting up even though I was depressed. I had to keep feeding them because of, Um, there was a song one time I heard that in my daughter's eyes, I am a hero, but if she knew she was really my hero.
1: What are some positive experiences within the Dahlia Grove program that have left a very lasting impression on you?
2: Oh my goodness. There are lots and lots like the time we took a girl to see the ocean for the first time. She was 24 years old and had never seen the ocean the time another girl saw her first mountain uh, we were actually reading in the car because we read when we go places and um she looked up and she goes whoa is that a mountain i said i think that's what they call that <laughs> she had never seen one it was funny um and and you know for me being of the christian faith we had one young lady who came to me and said look i think i want to be baptized and um so we talked about what that meant and what you know, that that means you want to pattern your life after Jesus and to live the way Jesus taught us to live. And she said, well, I've seen love here like I've never seen it anywhere. And that's the life I want to live. And so she was baptized. And so that was kind of cool. Um, but there are so many things. We had huh, We had one girl who's six foot four, very large African-American girl. And we're talking big girl. And um, we went out, to dinner at someone's house who actually taught a class for them and wanted them to come over for dinner. So I took them to dinner and when we got ready to leave, she reaches down and hugs this little tiny lady and she sa- started crying and she said, thank you so much. I never dreamed I would have a life where someone invited me to dinner.
1: That's, that sums it all up. And that's a perfect segue into <laughs> my next question. How have you grown because of your work with these young women?
2: Oh, Wow. They teach me more every day. I've learned more than I wanted to learn. <laughs> and it's hard because, you know, we are doing now a um, book study on conflict resolution and how to communicate to understand, not communicate to win an argument, communicate to build a bridge, not to build a wall. And and that's one of the biggest things. I think my communication skills have grown immensely because learning to communicate because I can be very just matter of fact, you know, I am my mother's daughter, let's be real. (laughs) But I have learned to communicate in a way where people don't feel attacked or judged or criticized and, and to correct people in a way that is um, motivating them to grow, not to feel like they failed.
1: Where can people go to learn more about Dahlia Grove and how they can show their support for your efforts and the women who are being helped there?
2: Well, our website has a lot of information, and we'll have all of the links for donating or being involved in our, our events that are coming up. Um, they also could go to our Facebook page or Instagram, and we put everything on there. We have a I do a concert series called Instruments of Love that all of my fellow musicians in Charlotte that play in the symphony or church musicians or school musicians um, play. We've had everything from opera singers to a flute choir to um, a mariachi band I mean, we've had everything and then we just take up a love offering but we do about six of those a year so those are fun to attend if you're in the charlotte area Um, they're free concerts so it's a good thing but then we have our gala and our golf tournament we always need sponsors for those big events so if you are in a corporation or if you have the means from family foundation to help us with that it is greatly appreciated
1: I'm going to have you take us to the end of our conversation with an answer to this question. What is it going to take to end human trafficking so that girls and women are safe once and for all?
2: Um, the biggest thing, there's nobody buying sex. Men have got to treat women differently. And, and it's just not, we aren't commodities to be sold. Um, whether they're selling themselves or if a pimp is selling them. Like I said, there's always a John, there's always a buyer, and that's got to stop. The other thing is with parenting, to raise your women to be strong, independent women.
1: Gail Smith, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure and honor. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, Please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash ChrisMeekPublicFigure and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at ChrisMeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.